hope you captured all the theology in the songs we just sang. I still cannot wrap my head around and process through the fact that he calls us friend. The omnipotent creator of the universe who spoke everything we see into existence, who is so big the solar system cannot contain him, who can hold our sun in the palm of his hand, looks at you and me and calls us friend. And then out of his great love for us, he enables us to know him experientially, not just knowledge about him. As Kelly was singing, we get to know him and knowing him is enough. So what a great time of worship. Again, I'm so honored that you're here tonight. I'm so grateful for this time and I hope God moves So take your Bibles and and open to Nehemiah chapter 8. And as you open, I want us to pray again. So if you'll bow your heads and uh, instead of leading you in a prayer, I'm going to ask you to pray something and then I'm going to give you a moment of silence to do it in your heart. But here's what I want you to pray. I want you to pray very simply, God, speak to me tonight. I don't want to hear Greg. I love him, but I don't want to hear him. I want to hear you. I want to hear you. So if you'll just take a moment and bow your head and just in in your heart, you pray that to God. Father, our hearts yearn for you and we need you desperately. And so we ask that you speak to us tonight. We pray that your voice will just explode in the caverns of our soul. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Two weeks ago in in the sermon that Sunday morning, I shared with you about an experience I had in college working with an organization called Fellowship of Christian Students. Uh, a group of college students and some, some wonderful adults uh, got the wild idea. We held a crusade in Irwinton, Georgia, Wilkinson County, Georgia. Go to Millersville and turn right if you want to know geographically where it is. And, and in hosting that crusade, we got to see the omnipotent Spirit of God just move in power. Discouraged Christians were restored and renewed and squabbling churches were revived and brought back to life. There there were a significant number of churches in that county who had not baptized anybody in the year before because they spent so much time fighting with each other, they didn't have time to share the gospel. And God moved. Churches were were, were just invigorated and, and in those few services that we held, uh, every night when we gave the invitation, numbers of people came forward to give their lives to Christ. And later we found out the DOM uh, told me later that in that first month after the crusade, 57 people were baptized in their local church as a result uh, of that crusade. It just was, it was just an incredible experience. It was just such an incredible blessing to see God move. Because, you know, we were a bunch of just 
squirrely-headed college kids. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know up from down, and yet we got to see God move. Now, you've had experiences like that. I, don't, I just shared that just to trigger thoughts and memories in your mind because you've been in those places. You've seen God move. You've been in services where it just was so obvious that what was happening was not a human-manufactured event. There was no way that what was going on could be attributed to human talent. It obviously had to be the Spirit of God as he moved through the place. And I want, you to, I want you to remember those, and I want you to hunger for those. Tonight, we're going to talk about having a, a, a picture of revival. I just want to paint a picture of revival for you as Nehemiah chapter 8 to prompt in you memories of revival previously in your life because I want to keep you hungering for it. About 10 years ago, the, the church I was serving up in Tennessee, we just had this season uh, it wasn't an event. We didn't have a, a service or a crusade. We didn't have a guest preacher. But we had this season. It just was the most remarkable thing from, from early in February until uh, just a few weeks after Bible school, toward the end of, of June. We just had this season of about five months that was just totally unexplainable. The things that we saw happen in that church, uh, the things we got to see on a weekly basis, were just they really just defied description. For, you know, just, we just... I, it just was remarkable. We baptized almost every Sunday for four and a half months. And, and every Sunday, it wasn't one or two baptisms. It was a herd of baptisms. And, and every Sunday, I, you would walk in the room. The room would be absolutely packed. The choir would have to stay up. The, the deacons would stand against the back wall. The ushers, actually, we, we would leave the doors open. And, of course, it was on this side of the building. But anyway, the, the ushers would actually sit in the hallway and listen from the hallway because they couldn't get into the room. It just was people were coming from left and right and from nowhere and everywhere. And we couldn't figure out what was going on. But people kept showing up. And every Sunday, I'd give the invitation and the altar would fill up. And people were getting right. And people were getting saved. And it was just it was the most remarkable, refreshing, invigorating, unbelievable experience because there was no explanation. We weren't doing anything special. We didn't have any guest preachers in. We didn't have any guest musicians in. We weren't programming anything. We weren't out beating the bush. Well, we were, but, but it just was remarkable to see how God was just moving. And it was no way it was a human manufactured event. Now, I don't mind programming. I really don't. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. We got, the, we got the horizontal and the vertical. We got to make sure both relationships are being worked. But a hunger for that season when it's so obviously the hand of God that no human gets credit and there's no way to describe and define what you're seeing happen. You've probably had that. Hopefully you have had that. And I want you to hunger for that. And I don't, I don't want you to go frustrated wanting that. I want you to keep seeking and searching and, and longing for that. For, it, see, it's in those times when we see God move in, in those profoundly powerful ways that we find our motivation to keep pressing on the Christian road and to keep plowing in the Christian field and to keep planting the seeds of the gospel and to keep hoping for God to bring the harvest. These days it's not easy being a Christian. And so we need those times of God moving to keep us going. And see, it's because of those encounters with the Spirit of God that we continue to long for those experiences of His amazing grace. And we don't settle for just the, the, the trite routine of, of churchiology. I don't want to just show up, sit down, stand up, fight, 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 and go home. I want to show up and know I have been 
with God's people in the presence of a holy, omnipotent God. See, I don't want us to be satisfied with just the church routine. I I want us to experience our Savior. I mean, think about the Psalms that David wrote. David said, I want to behold him. I want to know him. I want to see him in all his glory and beauty. I don't really think about God being beautiful. I mean, the masculine connotation is just kind of, but that's where David describes him. David says, I want to taste him and see that he is good. I mean, you, you think about the desire, the depth of the desire that David had to want to know God. And I, that's what I want for us. I want us to want God far more than we want anything else. I, I, you know, I, I don't want just a smooth little religious routine. I don't, I don't want to be this sweet little Christian. I want to be one of the Christians that hell's afraid of. Because I am boldly walking with God and he is using me to do things that really rattles the cages of hell. Now tonight, what I want us to do is walk through Nehemiah 8. And I want us to see the revival that God sent to the people of Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 8. And I want you to see this revival because I want you to long for it without ever giving up or growing weary or getting frustrated. I have to admit, sometimes I get frustrated because I want to see more of God. But I want us to fight that sense of frustration and just continue to long for him and to pray that he will move and to press in closer to him and to watch for him and to wait and not give up. We don't need to be like the virgins who didn't prepare for his arrival. They didn't get their lamps filled. And so when the bridegroom arrived, they weren't prepared. We need to continue to press on and prepare ourselves for when God shows up, we're ready to see it happen. And I really believe that at some point God will move. And it will be sweet. And we will be glad. And it will be worth whatever it takes to see it happen. So I want to read you 12 verses. It's going to take me a minute. Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm going to read just all the way through. I I usually will read a statement and talk a minute and read a statement and talk a minute. But I want you to get it in the context. I want you to see it as a package. So Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1. And all the people gathered as one in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand. So basically anybody old enough to understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month, And as he read from it, facing the square before the water gates, from early morning until midday, it's a little more than 40 minutes, in the presence of the men and the women and all those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive, attentive, attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood six men on his right and six men on his left. Verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. Now, let me stop a minute. Our English translation says, Ezra opened the book. But please understand, Ezra unrolled the scroll. 
Okay, just, that just drives me crazy when, anyway. So Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people as he opened it in all the people, and, and all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord. He worshiped the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen and Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And the 13 Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people would understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn and do not weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat. Drink the sweet wine. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not, grie- do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet. Knock it off. Hush up. For this day is set apart. It's unique. It's special. And do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make rejoicings because they had understood the words from God that were declared to them. So what you have in this passage is a blazing portrait of a genuine supernatural movement of God. And I want us to unpack it, not so that we see some kind of formula that we can follow, but so that we see it happen to these people. And hopefully in seeing it happen to others, we will hunger and long for it to happen to us. All I want to do tonight is just fan the flame of desire for revival that's already getting started in this church. What I want to do tonight is just pour gasoline on the fire that already exists. All right? So hopefully you're ready for that. Now, first thing I want you to see is in verse 1 it says, They gathered as one. All the people assembled as one. They stood in the town square as one. This is not simply describing their physical proximity. This is describing their spiritual unity. They were of one mind, one heart, one focus, one priority, one goal, one devotion. Like the church in Acts, they were of one accord. In this assembly, there was no competition. There was no resentment. There was no hostility. There was no antagonism. Can you imagine a religious group of people who didn't have any of those qualities? Is the church today not known for being more of a fighter than a lover? And haven't we unfortunately earned that reputation? When God moves and when God brings revival, it ushers in a sense of unity. When God moves among his people, 
And as God draws his people to himself, it cannot help but draw them closer to one another. You want to measure the level of the spiritual maturity of a church, you measure its unity. And that could be one of the most convicting things we need to face. Because let me ask you something. What do you get maddest about around here? What, 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 what will you get mad about the fastest? What just tears you up the fastest? What will get you on the phone talking to your best friends about? Can you believe those people down in that church? You know what they did? The only thing that should ever make you mad is if I ever stepped up in this, in this pulpit and said, Jesus is not the Son of God and he's not the only way to heaven. You don't have any right or any reason to get mad about anything else. Because you don't have any rights or any reasons to get mad about anything else. Because you don't have any rights. You're dead to yourself. And you're alive to him. And unless I stand up here and proclaim to you a gospel other than what is written in that book, we have no right to get mad at each other about anything. And the closer we get to God, the less our preferences matter. Well, I don't like that translation he uses. I could preach from the Greek. You may try that one. I had to tell you, I had a conversation, and she's sitting here, so I don't want to embarrass her. But I had a, one of our senior adults called me this week, and it was so sweet. She wanted to tell me what she'd read in the NIV, what she'd read in the ESV, what she'd read in the New American Standard, and then what she'd read in, in another translation that I didn't even know about. And I thought, bless your heart. You have stepped out and expanded your horizons. Now, I don't have a problem with the King James. Please don't misunderstand me. I don't have a problem with it at all. But when I came to Christ as a senior in high school, I didn't own a Bible. And the first time somebody handed me a Bible, it was an NIV. I never had a King James. When somebody handed me a King James, the first word I looked at was propitiation. I opened the book of Ephesians and I saw the word propitiation. I didn't think it was English. I closed it up and said, can I have my other one back? Now, if you read the King James, read it, love it, feast on it. The Psalms, especially in the, in the King James and in, in that Elizabethan English, is beautiful. But let's don't fight over translations. Let's, let's, let's don't fight over things. Listen, let's fight over things that matter. And what matters is how people get to heaven. And that's, you know, they gathered as one and they, they put aside all their differences. When God moves, the squabbling stops. The bickering stops. The complaining stops. The griping stops. Instead, there's peace and there's harmony. When God stirs his people, selfishness flees and, and, and entitlement flees and hostility flees. And, and people give up their claims to their rights and their demands. When, when, when I was in Birmingham, I was in First Baptist Alabaster for eight years. And, and, and while we were there, a church built a a 27,000 square foot family life center. Beautiful building. And our first year, we started an upward program. Y'all probably heard of upward basketball. Second year, our upward program went to 400 players. It just, it just exploded. Alabaster and Helena and Pelham and that area, Montevallo and Calera, just, it was a population growth. So we started this upward um, and it just exploded. We had 400 players. So the upward program monopolized the church's calendar. 
Every night was practice in the gym, and all weekend were games. And so the church members really didn't have access to the gym if they weren't in the upper program. Well, one Sunday night, this, this older gentleman named Fred pulled me aside after church. And he said, um, basically he said, I'm not real happy with you. And I went, I'm sorry, what did I do? He said, you've given our gym to all these outside people, all these, all these outsiders, and, and the church members can't even get to it. And I said, yes, sir, I have. What's wrong with that? He said, well, I'm helping pay for that gym. I should get some time to it. I'm entitled to my time in the gym. And I went, no, sir, you're not. We didn't build that building to entertain the saints. We built that building to reach the lost. Now, here's the cool thing. Here's the cool thing. That year, there were 18 children out of that program that were baptized because of the ministry of Upward. And one Sunday night, Fred pulled me aside. And he said, I'm sorry. And I am so grateful that we have Upward. And I'm so grateful our gym is full. And I'm so grateful for all those little kids that don't go to church here, but show up every night and practice and get their devotions and hear the gospel and play on Saturday and, and, and get to come to Jesus. That's when you know God's at work. He quit fighting for his rights and his entitlements, and he just came together in a unified effort to see God glorified by the salvation of lost people. You know, if you've ever been in a church that's of one accord, you know just how incredibly beautiful it is when people are loving and serving one another. And that's what God wants. And that's what God brings when revival hits. Now, the second thing we see is a great hunger for the Word of God. God moved upon the people. And it says they gathered as one to hear the Word. In fact, Scripture says the people were saying, bring out the Word, read us the Word. We want to hear the Word. In fact, they're demanding that Ezra read them the Word. Listen, when revival hits, the Word of God will take on a greater priority and a renewed focus and a deeper value. The Bible will no longer be this dry, dusty collection of old stories, but it will be a living, breathing revelation of the triune God as He explains Himself to his children. Ezra read from early in the morning until midday, and we don't know how long it was, but it was a while. And, and, and you've got to the intense heat of the Middle East. People are standing and they're transfixed and they're listening with great passion as this scribe stands and reads to them the law of Moses. Now think about it. Genesis has 50 chapters. Exodus has 40 chapters. Leviticus has 27 chapters. And they stood there in rapt attention, listening as this man articulated the word. I got to thinking about it. On a good day, I can make it through Genesis. Because I like the stories. And on a good day, if the guy reading it had one of those beautifully eloquent voices, you just, you know, one of those British, if he had a British accent, I could probably hang with him through the book of Exodus. But there's no way on my best day I'm getting through the book of Leviticus. Have you tried reading all the way through the book of Leviticus? 
And you still got Numbers, and it's got 37 chapters. And Deuteronomy's got 34 chapters. And Ezra stood on a platform with six men to his right and six men to his left and 13 Levites uh, moving among the people. And he read the law of Moses. That's 207 chapters. In the English translation, it's 5,851 verses. You don't think that's a miracle? There's a thousand people standing there in the heat of the Middle East, in the middle of the day, in rapt attention, as this Jewish man, in a croaky voice, reads out 5,851 verses. You ever gone to sleep in church? You ever got hauled out of church because you went to sleep in church? My grandparents uh, lived in Gurley, and so until I was seven, we went to First Baptist Gurley, Alabama. And back in the 60s, it was all wood. There was no carpet. There was no padded pews. Wooden pews, wooden floors. When I was six, I'm I'm pretty pigeon-toed. Don't make fun of me. And when I was six, I got corrective shoes. And man, you talk about ugly. And I'm sitting in church one day, and I'm swinging my leg, you know, because my feet don't touch the floor. And my mother sees what I'm thinking, because I got them big Claude Harper shoes on. And she leans over to me, she goes, don't you kick that pew. Man, she beat me down the aisle, through the door, on the porch. So I learned the best way to stay out of trouble was to go to sleep. And I was allowed to go to sleep. I would walk into church. I would curl up in my grandmother's lap. And and man, I'm out. And many of you have similar experiences. You learn to go to sleep in church. When God moves, you can't sleep if you try. It doesn't matter what's happening on the platform. When God moves, your attention is arrested and your imagination is captured and God will stir you and you will come alive sitting in that pew. Now, now listen, if you go to sleep in here, it's my fault. It, it is. Well, let me, if you stay up all night Saturday night and you come in here on two hours sleep and you go to sleep, that's your fault. Or if you get up at 2 in the morning to go hunting and you only got two hours sleep because you wanted to go hunting, that's your fault. You better bring you one of those bangs or whatever you call those drinks, you know? But if you've gone to bed the night and you've slept good and and I just put you to sleep, that's my fault. Don't worry about it. But you know, when God moves, it won't matter what I do. When God stirs, it won't be up to me. And when God makes himself, you know, God is always here. God is always here. God is omnipresent. But there are seasons and times and events and occasions where God makes his presence known in a very powerful and unique way. We're going to look at it tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 19 and 20. 
So there are those events when God makes himself known. And folks, listen, when, when revival hits and God makes himself known, I tell you what, I could give you a Valium and a sleeping pill and you'd still be awake. And that's what we want. That's what we want. Bring out the book. Read us the book. Let the word of God stir our hearts and wake us up. And again, it wasn't highly entertaining. And it wasn't this sophisticated uh, presentation. He simply stood and, and read the word of God. And it so captivated their heart because they were so overwhelmed with the glory of God and the way he was moving through the, through the people that, that they, they were wrapped attention. When, when revival hit, the word comes to life. When God moves, the, the words of Scripture just leap off the page and grab our hearts. Dry and dusty words become rivers of living water that flow through our soul and nurture our faith and stir our soul so that we step out and serve our living Savior with all our heart, with all we got. When revival hits, we can't not Read the word. We can't wait to get to the word. We hunger for the word. We think about reading the word. It's not a have to. It's a get to. We can't help but talk about the word. We get on emails. We get on Facebook. We get on the telephone and we talk about the word. We just will hunger for the word. We'll love the word. We'll feast on the word. We'll share the word. Because it is the truth of the living God. And it is powerful. In verse 5, we see the next thing that happens. The people gathered as one. They, they, they demanded that the word be read. And then they stood. When the word was open, they stood. They were so saturated with the presence of God that involuntarily they stood. Out of reverence and awe, they stood. It was a visceral response to the presence of God as the word was being read. We, they weren't told to stand. And because they had never done anything like this, there was no tradition. Uh, there, there was no precedence. There was nothing that would suggest they should do this. It just was a spontaneous reaction to the presence of God. They knew they were in the presence of the living creator. And out of awe and reverence, they simply stood in amazement. Listen, when God reveals himself and he stirs our heart, there will be a spiritual reaction. Often there will be an emotional reaction. And here we see there was a physical reaction. No one slept. No one doodled in the bulletin. They stood in wonderment and admiration. They were just simply gripped by God. And involuntarily they stood. Back last fall, the church I was serving in Madison, went through this brief little window of revival. And in fact, the, the search committee came the second week of, of this season. We weren't programming for it. We didn't have a special uh, speaker come in. We did some things. Uh, we, we had this, um, uh, we, we did this weekend where we read through the entire New Testament from the pulpit, 21 hours of reading straight through the Word of God. And we, we had done some other things. But there just was this six-week span where every Sunday we walked in, you knew something was different. It just, you just knew something was happening. 
And every Sunday, somebody would walk the aisle, and we baptized most Sundays. And, and, and kind of a neat thing now, as you look back on it, uh, that, that third Sunday, which was Labor Day weekend, this 13-year-old girl walked the aisle and gave her heart to Christ, and we baptized her uh, later in October. And what's, what's both tragic and comforting at the same time, I preached her funeral two weeks ago. But now I remember her as she came down the aisle. This tall, thin, quiet Stephanie, a segue, got to lead her to Christ, baptize her. She's now in heaven. She just, but anyway, one Sunday um, I, I, I preached and gave the invitation. And now, now, well, Highway is, is, a, is a wonderful church, but it's, it's full of, of army people who, who tend to be a little stoic and, and unemotional. It's full of engineers, and we love engineers, couldn't live without them, but they tend to be a little stoic and, and you know, mathematically left-brained, and, and a lot of times they're not given to emotions. And Wall Highway was just a church that, that kind of sat on its hands, and um, <laughs> so all the engineers are going, bang, bang, bang. So um, <laughs> I love you. I really do. I raised one. I wish I was one. I really do. But anyway, I gave this invitation one Sunday, and, and you know, you could tell there just there was a buzz in the room. There was an atmosphere. So I gave the invitation and, and the altar just filled up. And it wasn't one of those where they just came and they knelt and they prayed and they left. They they came and they stayed. And we went through this complete hymn. And our music minister's name is Luke. Luke played through the hymn and he looked over at me when he got to the end, and I went, You gotta keep going, big boy. We we got an altar full of people. I'm not going to send them back. So he went through the hymn again. And they were still there. And they looked at me, you know, what do I do now? And I went, sing something else. You know, I mean, I'm a PE major, but I can figure that out. So he just switched to another hymn, and he kept right on going. And he did a great job. And by the time we finished the, the singing of the third song, people had made their way back to their seats. But as I stood there on the platform and I watched all this unfold, it just, it dawned on me, God's at work here. Something's happening and he's not done yet. And I really didn't know what to do. I'd never experienced anything really like this. I didn't know how to handle it. I really wasn't sure what was protocol, what was, you know, what's taboo and what's culturally correct and, and what, you know. So I'm praying like crazy, God, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And, and so I, I finally, I just, I just see, I asked the people to sit down. And I just talked to him for a minute about, it. I really sense that God's at work. I really believe that, that, that you sense the presence of God in the place today. And, and so if you need to go, I understand. It's, it's past time. And, and some of you, you may need to go get your kids or you may need to get to work or you got people. If you need to leave, I understand. Nobody left. It was it just nobody left. And I went over to Luke and, and we kind of had a private staff meeting. And, and, and that week I had walked into his office and I said, hey, I found this brand new song. Uh, they're playing it on Way FM, and it's called Come to the Altar. Have you ever heard it? He goes, yeah, I think so. And so he pulled it up on his computer, and he read through the sheet music real fast. And he says, yeah, I've heard that. I said, that is an awesome song. We need to sing it sometime. I said, just really, really speaking to my heart. I just, I like the, 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 the theology of that song is just, just beautiful. And it's a beautiful tune, and I like the way it sounds. I said, we need to sing that sometime. And so during the week, he just kind of fiddled with it. And, you know, he'd just sit in his office and play on the piano, on his guitar. And I could hear him down the hall from my office. And, and so I walked over to him, and I said, do you remember that song? He said, yeah. I said, can you sing that song? And he thought about it a minute. He said, 
yeah, I can do it. So just standing there with just him and just his guitar, he goes into the song, and the song is just come to the altar. And it's just a beautiful rendition. It's just a, a slow, uh, melodic tune. Um, but anyway, I, see, the church didn't know it. We'd never sung it in church before. We didn't have the PowerPoint because the, the guys in, in, in the booth didn't know to put it on the screen because they didn't know I was going to do this. So, so they're singing without anything. And, and, and a few people in the congregation knew the song. And so you got a little bit of a ripple of uh, people singing with Luke. But most, no, most of the people didn't know the song or hadn't heard it. Or if they heard it, they didn't know it well enough to sing it. But it's just Luke on his guitar. Very simple. You know, no other instruments, no other, bio, you know, just, just Luke on the guitar. And it was so profound. And I stood there and I watched people begin to stand all over the room and just worship. They didn't know the song, but God was there. And they stood and they worshiped. And Luke's, I'm standing on this. Luke's looking at me and I'm looking at him and he's freaking out and I'm freaking out because what do we do now? Because we're not used to our church doing stuff like this. Because normally they just sit there and stare at us. And, and, and we just kept singing it. And it went on for about 10 or 12 minutes. I bet we sang through it three or four times. And nobody wanted to leave. And nobody wanted to stop. And nobody, nobody wanted to quit because they knew God was there. You know? And I tell you what, folks, if I could fabricate that every Sunday, I would. If I could manufacture that experience every Sunday, I would. But you can't because you cannot manufacture God. You just got to wait till God shows up. And when he does, you value it and you rejoice in it and you celebrate it. Well, next we read that Ezra led a praise service, and they worshipped. Because when God moves, you will worship, and it will be genuine, and it will be passionate, and it will be powerful, and it will be loud. The only places in Scripture that worship is described is described loudly. There are no library worship experiences in Scripture. Now, I don't mean to mock people who, listen, I... There are times I'll sit and quietly worship. But when, when God moves, Revelation describes worship as the sound of many rushing waters. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, it's one of the loudest places on earth. That's the way Revelation describes worship. It's forceful, it's powerful, it's loud. Nehemiah says the people lifted their hands and they praised God. And I just, I just picture this scene. There's thousands of people standing in the noonday Middle Eastern sun. And they're listening as an old man reads from the law of Moses. And God moves and God stirs and the power of God falls. And people spontaneously stand and they raise their hands and worship breaks out. And I long for that. Worship was expressive, it was heartfelt, and it was genuine. And when worship is genuine, it will be life-changing. There was adoration, and there was gratitude, and it was powerful. How many times you looked around this room and seen people sitting there, arms crossed, boredom written all over their face? Hey, I'll be the first to admit, if, it's, if you're getting nothing but me, it's going to be boring. Uh, you know, I, I don't have one of those electric personalities that just lights a room up. I, I wish I did. But if you get God, you don't need me. And it will be powerful. And it will be responsive. And you will be stirred. 
and you will be moved. These people, they stood, they uncrossed their arms, they lifted their hands, and they worshiped with all their hearts. And as they worshiped, they bowed their faces in reverent worship. They, they, they bowed to the ground, and, and they were broken in their hearts, and the tears began to flow. And Scripture says that God loves a broken and contrite spirit. You know, so often we come into this room and we miss out on the presence of God because we're so full of ourselves we can't see Him. I mean, I hate to be confrontational, but that's just the truth. I walk in here so often, and I'm just full of Greg. And, I, you know, and, and if I'm full of Greg, there's no place for the Spirit to go. And you walk in here, and you're full of you, and there's no place for the Spirit to go. But we walk in here with a broken heart, and we've emptied ourselves, and we've died to ourselves, and, and we've removed ourselves from the equation, and we're seeking God, and we're searching for God, and we've opened up our heart, and we've given him access and room that he can move through us. And when he does, he stirs us, and it's worship, and it's powerful, and it's beautiful, and it's life-changing. And then finally, Ezra's response to the weeping and the brokenness of the worship was to change the gear completely and call for a triumphant celebration. God had moved among his people and made his presence known. And so it was time for the weeping to stop and the celebration to start. As Jesus says in the New Testament, when the bridegroom shows up, you stop fasting and you start celebrating. And so when you get to the end of, of this passage, you see the celebration start. Nehemiah and, and Ezra stepped up and said, this day is holy. It's unique. We're set apart. It's special to God. And we're, got, we're not going to mourn anymore. We're not going to weep anymore. Instead, we're going to celebrate our awesome God. And they sent the people away and they said, go eat of the best choice meat. Hey, I checked it out today at Kroger filet mignon was $16 a pound. So, Debbie, sorry. I got the cheap stuff. But they ate the choice meat, the fatted meat. And they drank the sweetest wine. They weren't Baptists, but that's okay. And they rejoiced and they celebrated it because the power of God's presence had moved in a mighty way. And see, here's what happened. Here's what really happened. Here's what you need to understand about the story. See, Years and years before, they had been conquered by the Babylonians and enslaved as war refugees. Then they had gone into Persia as slaves of the Persians. And then, and then the Persia, Cyrus the Great, had released them. And Ezra, 14 years prior to this event, Ezra had led a group of people back to Jerusalem. But even once they got back and they were no longer slaves of Persia, they were still, um, they were still the, the puny kid on the block. And all the surrounding uh, tribes would, would come over and, and fight with them and, and you know, kind of bully them and, and beat on them. And so th their corporate self-esteem was just really low. They were, they, were the, they were the bullied kid on the block. That's just the way to put it. And now what they're thinking is, our God has shown up and our God has rescued us and we are now his children and he's going to fight for us and the surrounding tribes are not only going to be able to bully us and pick on us. They now had a sense of self-esteem and a sense of identity and they thought because he is the greatest of gods and we are his, we're going to be the greatest of people, which is true. And so there was great rejoicing. It was great celebrating. They were no longer the outcasts and the orphans. They were his. 
Do you understand? You're his. You've been adopted into his family. You ever been to the pound and, and adopted a puppy or a, a kitten or, or an animal? You ever been to the pound and seen all the animals there? When, when my oldest son got back from Australia, we, we'd had a, a, a yellow lab for 13 years. And the boys had grown up with this 65-pound dog that thought it was a Doberman Pinscher. And, and anyway, she was uh, crazy. Um, but she, we had to put her down, and, and Jordan went off to Australia and came back, well, New Zealand and came back. And what, when he got back, he said, Dad, you need a dog. No, I don't need a dog. I still haven't got over the one I had to put. You know, there were two years before I could walk down the dog food aisle at the grocery store. I know that's bad, but I just was so, I was devastated over that dog, you know. And um, so, so Jordan says, hey, we need, to, we need to foster dogs. So he goes down to the Humane Society, takes their little class, fills out all the papers, and says, you know, so we're going to be foster parents to dogs at the pound that can't get adopted. And so Jordan goes down to pick up the first one, and she says, which one do you want? He says, give us the dog that has the least chance of ever being adopted. She goes, I got the one. She takes him down, uh, the cage on the end. There's this little pit bull. She's 35 pounds. Her ribs are showing. Her ears have been chewed off. She's scared of her own shadow. She, she is, she's the most emotionally fragile dog you've ever seen. Jordan says, sure, I'll take her. He scoops her up. She didn't even whimper. She didn't react. She just, you know, he brings her home, puts her in the backyard. I walk out. I look at that dog. It's like a big hairy rat. I'm going, I don't know what you're going to do with that, that dog, son, but, you know, I think you've got a hopeless situation. Well, I'll tell you what, he loved on that dog, and he nurtured that dog, and he fattened her up. And I'll tell you what, she just blossomed. And then he got one of his really close friends to adopt her as a forever parents. And she, Daisy, her name's Daisy. Daisy goes to live with, with, with Luke and Alex. Alex is a girl. And, and um, just wanted you to know, Alex is a girl. Just dawned on me. If you don't know her, you may, anyway. So, so Daisy goes to live with Jordan's friends. And, and so we get to stay in contact with her every now and then. She'll come and visit us and we get to see how, how well she's done. But, but here's my point. You and I were in the, in the kennel. We, we were lost and separated from a holy God. And there was absolutely nothing attractive about us. We were stained with the ugliness of sin. And God walked in and said, in spite of how they look, and in spite of how they act, and in spite of all their qualities and characteristics are so negative and opposed to anything I care about, I want them and I will adopt them and I will make them mine. And we became his and he has nurtured us and loved us and fed us and stirred us and we have blossomed in him. He's made us his own. We have a place at his table. We have an inheritance with Christ. Do you realize that everything God the Father is going to give God the Son, He's going to give us. We don't get the leftovers. We get the first addition. Because we have been adopted into His family. We're His. So the Israelites were no longer outcasts. They were no longer orphans. They were they were his. And so the motivation for serving God is joy that comes from being rightly related to God the Father. 
The motivation for serving God is joy as we experience his presence and taste his goodness and behold his glory. There is great joy in serving God when he moves among his people, restoring our hearts, redirecting our lives, and targeting new paths. There's great joy when we are right with God, walking with God, and worshiping God. There's great joy when the relationship is right, and the hearts are pure, and the motivation is strong. It says the joy of the Lord is our strength. That word strength really means protection, fortification. In fact, the literal interpretation of the Hebrew word is the helmet, the, the The helmet a soldier would wear for protection. The joy of the Lord is our protection against the difficulties that come against us in this life. You know what we use to motivate us to serve God? Not guilt. It's not guilt. It's joy. When Jesus looked at his followers in his high priestly moment there in John 17... I think it's John 17. Uh, forget that. I don't remember where it is. I just know what it says. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, my joy, my joy, God's joy, omnipotent joy, my joy, I give to you. And I give it to you in the full. And, and that's our strength and our motivation and what compels us and provokes us to follow him and to serve him. And isn't that great? Don't you want a God that pours grace and mercy on us and fills us with joy rather than a God that beats us over the head with a stick and chases us, drives us down the road? God wants you to know joy and be filled with joy and experience joy. Jesus tells us that he wants us to know joy. The book of Philippians is about joy (laughs) because God wants us to know joy. And when revival comes and when God moves and the Spirit fills our lives and our hearts, the experience will result in an indescribable joy. I don't know about you, but I want that. And it's not selfish of me to want that because it's what God wants me to have. So there you have it. It's a picture of a genuine movement of the Spirit of God. They stood as one. They demanded the word. They stood in adoration. They raised their hand in worship. And then they went out in celebration. Now listen, don't take those five steps as some kind of formula that will provoke God to do what we want him to. He is sovereign and we cannot manipulate the hand of God. But in those five steps, we can see things that we can line up with, that we can prepare our hearts and position ourselves. If God chooses sin revival, we're ready and anticipating. 